Welcome everybody, I'm Brent Stafford and this is another segment of RegWatch on GFN.TV. The struggle to secure nicotine vaping products as a viable alternative to smoking grows more frustrating by the day. While the science on vaping continues to show it can be a successful tool to quit smoking, possibly saving tens of millions of lives, the attacks against vaping grow more virulent. Why is that? Vaping supporters are simply asking public health, politicians and regulators to embrace the common sense of harm reduction. But is this request a bridge too far? Joining us today to discuss this question is Dr. Ronald Dworkin. Dr. Dworkin is an anesthesiologist, political scientist, and author of four books and numerous magazine essays. He's a lecturer at George Washington University Honors Program and previously served as the Director of Medicine, Society, and Culture Program at the Hudson Institute. Dr. Dworkin, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You have an article published on Quillette titled The Ideological Aversion to Harm Reduction, which you start off with an analogy between putting a patient under general anesthesia and how the medical profession perceives harm reduction. Please explain that for our viewers. Well, I started the essay by saying how anesthesiologists are unusual among doctors and that they, they like combative patients, at least when patients are waking up from anesthesia. It means that the patients have the spirit to overcome the anesthetic and fight the breathing tube in their windpipe. Uh, and return to life. And uh, if the patient doesn't fight back, that usually means there's a complication of some kind. Now, most doctors, of course, don't like this. They prefer passive patients, uh, patients who take orders from the doctors and do what they are told to do. And it is a reason I said why I thought a doctors think harm reduction is sort of strange. The idea of letting patients uh, fight back, uh, ignore the ideas of good health, ignore uh, uh, doctor recommendations, engage in activities that are a little bit harmful, maybe less harmful than the extreme activities, but still somewhat harmful. For example, using clean needles for illicit drug abuse rather than dirty needles, or using e-cigarettes rather than tobacco to get, um, to get nicotine. All this seems rather odd to physicians. And for this reason, I know doctors have not been leaders in any of the major harm reduction movements, whether in e-cigarettes and smoking or needle exchange programs and opiate abuse or birth control and safe, safe, safe sex technologies and uh, the sexual revolution or the designated driver movement and alcohol abuse. Doctors have come around on these issues, but they were never leaders on them. And that was the reason. Smoking provides some unique complications around surgery, does it not? It does. Uh, anesthesiologists are always concerned that smokers, for example, have uh, poor blood circulation. They have respiratory complications, more complications after anesthesia. So we always ask for a smoking history uh, before an operation because uh, you can have serious problems if you have a history, long history of smoking. So what then brought you around to the concept of harm reduction and specifically tobacco harm reduction? Well, I got interested in the subject of harm reduction while working on a larger piece about the public health establishment in the U.S., how I, I thought it had grown a bit arrogant and gone beyond the traditional aspects of public health, for example, infectious disease control and quarantine, and had ventured into other areas, um, for example, taxes, domestic violence, foreign policy, race relations, and so on, armed with a scientific method and using a little bit of a philosophical sleight of hand, uh, public health, I thought, had basically turned every human malady into a potential public health problem, giving them the right, they think, to have a seat at the table and make policy on it. 
And included in this new list of activities that public health had arrogated for itself was people's everyday behavior. Uh, and that includes smoking. And the fight against smoking, I will say right out, was an important accomplishment of public health. Um, but the problem is that the excitement um, of public health experience in taking over all these new projects, including everyday human behavior, is that they brought the scientific method to bear uh, and a certain arrogant idealism to bear, ideology, I call it, on everyday life problems. And as a result, they began to ignore reality. They began, began to ignore human nature. The fact that some people will want to stupefy themselves with alcohol or nicotine, for example. Uh, the old saying, man and women were pharmacologists before they were farmers because they like to stupefy themselves. And so rather than make the world perfect, where people would not smoke, for example, public health was trying to ban the intermediate or the compromised position uh, where you could use nicotine, maybe not in the form of smoking, but safely in the form of electronic cigarettes. And I thought their opposition to this compromised position motivated by this extreme ideology, uh, this idea of perfecting human beings was unreasonable uh, and too idealistic. And as I said, arrogant. Do uh, e-cigarettes work? Do they do the job that's promised by advocates? Yes, I think they, I think they do. Uh, it, uh, E-cigarettes are a compromised way of receiving nicotine, safer than using tobacco. There's uh, no carbon monoxide. There's not the problem of tar and other carcinogens. It is a safer method of taking in nicotine than using tobacco. So I think it serves that purpose well. So Ron, when it comes to tobacco harm reduction, does it save lives? And I guess, you know, is it a valid strategy, uh, you know, compared to say, you know, something for hard drugs. And I do think uh, tobacco harm reduction saves lives. The best thing would be if people didn't smoke at all, but it's difficult for them to stop smoking. As I just said, people do like to stupefy themselves with different chemical agents. If you look at the United States, 60 million Americans use a sleep aid at night, 30 million Americans are on antidepressants, 15 million Americans are on anti-anxiety agents, 15 million Americans abuse alcohol, 65 million Americans are binge drinking at least once a month, 2 million Americans use opioids. So people are not gonna stop stupefying themselves with agents. And so if they're going to use nicotine as their stupefying agent of choice, then I prefer, and I think it's reasonable to infer, that it's safer to do so with, with electronic cigarettes through vaping, without the tar and the other carcinogens, carcinogens and without the carbon monoxide found in tobacco these things cause cancer and other conditions. So uh, it's better to use e-cigarettes than tobacco. Is it even better to use nicotine patches and chewing gum instead of electronic cigarettes? Perhaps, but some people like the experience of inhaling. And if that's the case, and it's a choice between the using tobacco or not using the nicotine patches, then it's better for us to have an intermediate position, which is the electronic cigarettes or the vaping. Um, we don't wanna have the perfect become the enemy of the good. You know, Dr. Dworkin, I, I like that term stupefying agent. In a way, it seems that public health, you know, does just simply does not want the stupefying of nicotine to whatever extent that is to be allowed, whereas say like a nicotine patch provides no stupefying. Yeah, yes, I, I think that's true. Uh, I is, when I mentioned that public health has taken for itself, increased its portfolio to include many other aspects of life, including everyday life, and the fact that many people like to stupefy themselves with substances and have done so for thousands of years 
It's as if the fact that they do so is a public health malady and has to be fixed. But the problem can't be fixed. It can be controlled for in some ways, made safer for both people who use these agents and for society at large, but you'll never rid society of it. And so I think it's better and more sensible to accept that fact than to try to police all kinds of superfaction and get rid of it altogether, which is impossible. It can't be done. Is nicotine the demon that vaping opponents have made it out to be? I mean, not, no, not relatively speaking. I mean, compared to the other highly addictive stupefying agents, um, uh, cocaine, alcohol, and heroin, nicotine is much safer. Um, at the very least, it's not mood modifying or impairing like the other substances I just mentioned are. Nicotine is not perfectly harmless. It, harmless. it is a drug. Um, sugar and oxygen, for example, they seem perfectly harmless, but they also are drugs. And if used incorrectly, they can cause problems. And so in the case of nicotine, if it is a drug and not perfectly harmless, then doctors think, why risk any problems by taking nicotine at all? Um, just don't take any nicotine. That's the health ideal. And so a policy like harm reduction, where you're going to accept a little unhealthy activity as something acceptable as a baseline, that does seem strange to doctors. What's blocking progress then with the medical profession in terms of accepting THR? Uh, as I just mentioned, the philosophy behind harm reduction uh, does seem strange to doctors. That's part of it. Also, I should note that doctors, like all people, are creatures of habit and they like new things and new approaches, but sometimes it's just easier to practice as one has always practiced and not do the new thing, which comes with a learning curve. And so inertia may be another reason why doctors are not interested in harm reduction. And how much do you think that the Evali scare might have played a role in setting THR back? Oh, I think it did play a role, uh, and unfairly, I believe. Um, the problem with the Evali scare, where people got these serious lung infections and some of them died, it wasn't the e-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes. It was many of the users, users had laced their electronic cigarettes, their vaping devices, with cannabis oils. And they had tampered with the devices, and, and uh, sometimes they had purchased them from informal sources. So the problem wasn't the electronic cigarettes. Indeed, cannabis is more of the problem. But doctors grew scared, like other people did, especially when they're already predisposed against e-cigarettes in the first place. And that really hurt the vaping cause. It occurs to me that the problem with the Valley was a real problem with public health because it was such a powerful tool for them. Yeah. Oh, oh, there's no question that a valley scare was leveraged to lead to uh, both on the state and federal level, uh, aggressive policing of vaping and more regulation of vaping and making vaping almost getting rid of vaping in certain states. It was the occasion. It was the, the useful method, the crisis waiting, um, the opportunity that had waited for the crisis. And that was the crisis. And they, people who did not like vaping, they use it as the opportunity to get rid of vaping. So that's what it was. It was the useful political tool to, uh, to go against vaping. In uh, your recent article in Quillette, you make a point that surprised me, that two-thirds of doctors as of 2018 actually, you know, are pro to a certain extent, uh, ends products for use, you know, for people who are smoking. But I, I mean, that stuns me because generally the medical profession seems to be the biggest problem. Yeah, there has definitely been a sea change among doctors on the question of vaping and electronic cigarettes. Uh, they're more accepting of electronic cigarettes than before. But as I noted in that Colette essay, the medical profession coming around our new healthcare issue isn't usually enough to push it forward. What is usually needed to advance things is a more broad-based ideology that resonates with the larger public. 
And uh, that happens in the case of other movements that doctors were not particularly advancing or involved in. Usually it was not the medical profession that pushed things forward. It was an ideology and non-doctors who did so. So for example, as I mentioned in the essay, the fitness and diet craze, um, uh, that was pushed forward not by doctors, uh, but by uh, public health people, for example, or corporations that were worried about the um, productivity of their workers. And they had a, an ideology behind it with its own code word. The word was lifestyle. The same was uh, the case of chronic disease. Um, it was a problem, but doctors pretty much ignored it. They were much more interested in acute disease, even as late as the 1970s. But it was pushed um, by public health people in this case and others. And the ideology had its own catchword again, and that catchword was wellness or sometimes healthy aging. And even in the other cases of harm reduction, again, doctors were not pushing this. Um, they came around eventually, but they didn't push it. They didn't move it forward past the goalposts. In the case of birth control, that was pushed by non-doctors. And the ideology there was usually feminism, my body, my choice. And the case of alcohol harm reduction, it was the designated driver concept or slogan. And that was pushed by public health people and the Hollywood people, actually. So doctors, they come around eventually, but they don't lead. Usually they don't lead. And if they do lead, it's not enough. Now, in the article, you also mentioned that non-physicians drunk on ideology are responsible. So are these the people and the kind of ideological thinking you're talking about? Yes. When I talk about an ideology, I'm referring to a, a doctrine or a set of principles that resonates with part of the public uh, and it has an element of hope and aspiration in it. Uh, not just the drive to make the world better, but all, also to create a kind of utopia. And what's holding back harm reduction now in the area of tobacco and opioid abuse, it's not the practical people. It's not, say, the doctors. Uh, they've come around. But it's the non-doctors who are filled with ideology and who imagine a more perfect social order, uh, a more perfect human being, where no stupefying agents of any kind are used and where people search for happiness only with the prescribed and healthy grooves. And one finds ideology work among public health people among politicians, among lay people with no medical background, but who, for example, may be acting as counselors. They are the main reason that harm reduction is being held back, not the doctors. So which side uh, within the political spectrum, uh, you know, is this more applicable to? Is it a left or a right issue or both? Well, the ideology um, against vaping is mostly found on the political left, uh, including the public health establishment. Um, is less on the political right. Uh, one of the reasons is that most smokers come from, uh, are mostly low income working people or what might be called lower middle class. They like vaping and they need vaping to get off cigarettes, get off tobacco. These people tend to vote Republican. And so the conservatives or the right tries not to antagonize them and not tries, to, tries not to push the vape, anti-vaping issue. Um, also the public health establishment tends to swing left and one of the public health's great achievements is exposing the dangers of smoking. Anything that suggests backtracking in any way uh, on smoking, in the case of e-cigarettes, the idea of any kind of nicotine delivery device um, is opposed reflex reflexively. But that's why anti-vaping is largely on the left and not the right. Would you say, or is it true that anti-vaping ideology has become hegemic? Well, it is in the sense of that without an opposing ideology to fight the anti-vaping ideology, um, the vaping cause was not going to advance, I'm afraid. Um, the problem is, the problem for the pro-vaping people is not the lack of good science or not having the ear regulators. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is more of an ideological one. It's a more a problem of public opinion or 
you might even say public relations. Unless the vaping movement understands that, it will continue to face these huge obstacles. I know that many people who are vaping advocates are frustrated by the lack of common sense going on within the debate. Yes, because I, I think it, it, this is the problem with ideology. When ideology is involved, common sense often goes out the window because people have such visions of perfection that they envision that they sidestep common sense. They look at common sense not as wisdom, but as an obstacle, and they find it troublesome, and it actually interferes with their ability to get to the utopia they want to achieve. So that's a problem. Harm reduction is a very sensible, level-headed, moderate approach to human life. And utopians, idealists, often don't like that. In a way, has vaping got in the way of their plan uh, for building a better generation of kids? Uh, yes, it has. It, it, it's kind of a, there's a certain kind of a peculiar thinking here. The idea that human beings can be made something sort of a, a straight and follow along a certain groove, a uh, prescribed groove of um, safe activity, a reasonable activity, um, without any kind of irrationalities, uh, that's, that's not possible. Teenagers, some teenagers vape or smoke cigarettes. If they didn't do that, they would find some other vice. Now let's turn to the right, because on the right, is there not a utopia as well that's in the way for vaping, or at least uh, tobacco harm reduction? And the issue of vaping on the right, um, on the right, included on the right, the political coalition is the religious right to the degree they still exist. And religion has traditionally looked with suspicion on all sorts of stupefying agents, uh, because these agents interfere with people's God-given free will, and so they don't like them for that reason. Uh, but uh, politics overrides this concern or suspicion on the right, I think, because they know that their coalition includes people who like vaping. So I don't see any, there's no real antagonism toward vaping on the right. There is antagonism towards opiate harm reduction on the right, because there is a suspicion uh, towards all agents that produce a kind of euphoria, so that there is opposition on the right to uh, cannabis legalization or all kinds of drug legalization. Although one finds on the libertarian right, um, there's more sympathy towards that. There's also a law and order uh, aspect of the political right, and they see the crackdown and opiate abuse as another way of uh, enforcing law and order. So it's a little bit complicated on the political right, but in general, I would say that the right is more sympathetic to vaping, more opposed to opiate harm reduction. So what hope is there then if the right has an aversion to THR because of their historical position on hard drugs, and the left doesn't believe tobacco harm reduction is a valid application of the harm reduction principle? Well, there is hope, um, but in the case of tobacco harm reduction, you have to change your strategy. So right now, the vaping cause, it seems dead, um, but if cannabis could come back from the dead, it was hated and despised in the 1980s, and now it's come back from the dead, and uh, it's almost on the verge of legalization, a vaping can too. But rather than focus on the science of vaping and working quietly with regulators and the FDA to further the cause of vaping, you have to work more in the realm of public opinion and ideology. Uh, as I said in one venue, in the United States government is not so sovereign, public opinion is sovereign, and public opinion moves very slowly, but when it does move, it's decisive. So right now, public opinion uh, especially the most important aspect of public opinion, which is upper middle class opinion, is opposed to vaping. And so you'll have to turn this around. And there are a few things you can do. So first, you have to stabilize public opinion. You have to work to decrease people's fear about fears about the teenagers vaping. Uh, some of those fears are overblown. Uh, I've cited in that essay, Brad Rodu's work, Brad Rodu is a professor, I believe it, somewhere in Kentucky, 
who said that rather than 3 million new vapors among teenagers, it's only, only 90,000. Uh, the numbers were overblown because they included 18 and 19 year olds who are adults and they also included people who are already smoking. Uh, but it scared a lot of people, particularly upper middle class people. So you're gonna have to try to find, make sure you have a way to allay the concerns of those people by not say pushing flavors that might be uh, um, liked by teenagers. And you also might at this stage, uh, try to show the medical benefits of nicotine the way cannabis did. Cannabis tried to show its medical benefits in the case of saying helping cancer pain or nausea. So that's the first stage. And once you've stabilized public opinion, then I think it's important to pursue two tracks. There's vaping for harm reduction, and there's vaping as a consumer product. Um, because nicotine, unlike the other stupefying agents, is not that mood modifying. Uh, I don't mean a product that is easy to get. I don't, I don't mind at this stage, even if nicotine was uh, for by prescription. But I wanted to get established that nicotine or vaping products is for harm reduction, but it's also a stupefying product that can be used for everyday and happiness and anxiety. If upper middle class people can use their Prozac and Ellaville, there's no reason others that others cannot use their, use their e-cigarettes if they're feeling down. Now, after that's established, the third thing you have to do is you have to have an ideology that is developed to rival the other ideologies along the two tracks. So in the case of harm reduction, you have to have an ideology that acknowledges people are the way they are. They like to stupefy themselves. So we have to let's get real about them. We have to have reality here. The second track is an ideology that declares there is a, an area, a safe space, off limits from the public health establishment and the government in general where people can live the way they want and vape what they want when they come home from a hard day's work. Uh, and this ideology might be an ideology of freedom. And then the fourth phase, tobacco harm reduction within I hope move alongside the other harm reductions, uh, reduction efforts in public health uh, in the portfolio. I mean, there's already safe sex products, designated driver concepts, opioid abuse harm reduction. I hope the day when tobacco harm reduction goes into that public health portfolio and becomes legitimate. At the same time, I'd like for vaping then to become also a legitimate consumer product without prescription needs, something to be enjoyed in the realm of freedom and private life. Dr. Dworkin, the Global Forum on Nicotine Conference in Warsaw, Poland is coming up this June 16 to 18. I know that you delivered the Michael Russell oration at GFN in 2019. I'd like to ask you, why is a conference like GFN 22 important to the tobacco harm reduction effort? Because this is where the ideas for moving beyond the science um, get hatched, um, going to other areas such as mobilizing public opinion, improving public relations and so on. To do this, is not the, it's not the kind of thing that is developed in a lab or by combing through statistics alone. This requires dialogue from all the different groups interested in nicotine. Uh, and this is why the forum is so important. It's one of the few opportunities for all the people to get together and for this kind of idea hatching to occur. And you think it's a fight that's winnable? Definitely, but it'll take time. You'll have to play the long game. Don't forget it took 20 years, 30 years for cannabis to go from dead to something that's on the verge of legalization. This will take time too. So you'll have to persevere. It won't be tomorrow or next year. It'll be 10, 20 years. And eventually I think vaping will be both uh, an important part of harm reduction and will become a consumer product, a legitimate consumer product, but it'll take time.